0: Which please turn with me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends in Kalispell, uh, Montana, and also Arco, Idaho. We are so glad to have you join us in our study of God's Word. You know, it's just amazing how many people join us online and from how far away, from across the nation. Had one from Virginia um, email me the other day that they had been watching from Virginia. As far away in the world as Africa. I had somebody uh, email me that they were watching from one of the countries in Africa near Victoria. Victoria Falls. Uh, just had somebody come up to me after the first service and say um, they had just called randomly like uh, a social security office or whatever, just a random person online because they were getting a check uh, for, child check for, they were working with Vacation Bible School. And, and the guy sees what church we're on. This is just a random person online and says, tell Pastor Glenn I said hi. And they were from, it was Iowa was the uh, address on that. He says, tell Pastor Glenn we said hi. So you The the impact of this church just goes everywhere, and I just praise God for you all and how God is using you in just absolutely a wonderful way. Now, we're doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of James, and today we come to James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. And the title of our study is Practical Atheism. Now, practical atheism. I believe that there are very few what I would call intellectual atheists, people that truly don't believe that there's a God. And there's research that backs that up. I just read some secular research. This is not a Christian research firm. This is secular research I just read the other day that said that only 4.5% of the global world's population, what, 7.3 billion or whatever we are right now, only 4.5% consider themselves to be atheists. Now, here's the most interesting part about that. I, I would maybe expect it to be about that amount. The interesting part is that number is shrinking as the years go by. You would think with secularization, modernization, globalization, that maybe that number might be increasing. It's doing the exact opposite. There are Atheists, as a percentage of the world population, is dropping. It's at 4.5% and dropping. Now, why is that? Because I believe in people's hearts as we learn more about the universe, as we learn more about our bodies and and the world around us, as we learn more and more, it makes us less prone to be an atheist. We believe there's got to be a designer behind the design of the universe uh, more and more as time goes on. And we just see that number uh, dropping. All right, so I don't think there are that many intellectual atheists. I think that the number is shrinking. Uh, However, there are many practical atheists. And I confess to you that that I'm one of them much of the time. I, I believe in God, but I don't live my life as if there's a God. I believe in my mind that there's a God, but there's no carryover impact into life at school or life in your business or life in my family or life in our recreational pursuits. Now, James so far has been talking about the basic struggle between doing my way and God's way. He's talking about willfulness. But now he's going to change direction and talk not so much about willfulness, but now forgetfulness. The problem he's talking about today is not so much willingly choosing my way over God's way, but instead just forgetting about God, living our, my life, forgetting about him in certain areas of my life as if he doesn't exist. And so he's going to talk about two areas, playing God with others and playing God uh, with ourselves. Now, playing God with others involves slandering, speaking against other people, and judging them. Uh, James 4, verse 11, and there's an overlap from last Sunday. Last Sunday, we dealt with verses 11 and 12 kind of superficially. Now we're going to go into depth a little bit more. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now this word slander in, in the Greek is much broader than the English translation here is slander. It's katalalite is the Greek word. And it, it, and it includes slander, and the legal term for slander, legal definition means when you spread negative information that damages a person's reputation. But katalalite in the Greek is much broader than slander. It literally means talking someone down. That's what the Greek word katalalite literally means, talking somebody down, uh, negatively talking about people, harshly critical of other people. That's all included under katalalite, And so he says, brothers and sisters, do not cut halalate. Don't talk down other people, one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law. Now, we said this last Sunday. This is most likely Leviticus 19, verse 18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that makes perfect sense because, you see, if you obey loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God, Basically, the rest of the things just take care of themselves. You'll naturally obey the Ten Commandments or the other uh, laws of God. A a great pastor by the name of Augustine, 400 A.D., he had had an awesome quote. It went like this. Love God and do as you please. Love God and do whatever you feel like. Now, usually, whatever I please is not something that will please God, okay? If you just say, say what comes naturally, Glenn, when you're angry, Do what comes naturally. Whatever you feel like doing, just do it. Well, it makes sense, though. If you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, then do what you please, and it will be the right thing because as long as your motivation is you're loving your neighbor as yourself, do to others as you'd have them do to you, you won't steal from them because you wouldn't want to be stolen from. You won't cheat on their wife because you wouldn't want your wife uh, cheating with your wife. Uh, You won't murder somebody because you wouldn't want to be murdered, And, and so on through the whole law. And so he says here, that when we speak against a brother or sister, we're taking the place of God. We're playing God and judging them. We are speaking against that law, love your neighbor as yourself, and judges it. We're sitting in judgment of the law. And you know, that's what we do so many times with the Bible. People say, well, like that, don't like that, like that, don't like that, and that. You know, as a matter of fact, if you go to Monticello, the birthplace or the home of Thomas Jefferson in Virginia, in Charlottesville, Virginia... Um, they've got a copy of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. And it literally has about two-thirds of it cut out. Thomas Jefferson went through and cut out everything he didn't like in the Bible. So it's a very thin Bible. And it's kind of like, these are the part, but we all are guilty of that. We may not be that dramatic as to literally cut it out, but we all kind of sit in judgment. I'm the judge. Like that, not cool, doesn't apply to the 21st century. And we sit in judgment on it. But instead, he says, a brother or sister speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it. Instead, the law is supposed to judge me, rather than me judge the law, but sitting in judgment on it. And so he says that when we slander and speak against it and judge each other, we are uh, playing God with other people. Now, why is it wrong? First of all, it displaces God. Let's go to verse 12, just the first part of it. There's only one lawgiver. Shouldn't play God because there's only one God. One lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy. And so I'm taking the place of God when I katalolite another person. Secondly, it ignores our own faults. Uh, Verse 12, the second half of it. But you, and in the original Greek, it carries with it the idea, literally, the way I'm saying it. But you, who are you? Who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? Now, let me share what this does not mean and then what share what it means because what it does not mean is the way it is usually interpreted uh, by the average American uh, today. They did a research of the favorite Bible verses of the average American. Guess what was number one? Number one favorite Bible verse of, of, of the average American was God helps those who help themselves. Now, there's a problem with that. It's not in the Bible, okay? Can anybody tell me where that comes from? Anybody? Benjamin Franklin. Yes, we have some historians there. The 67th book of the Bible by Benjamin Franklin. All right? Uh, God helps those who help themselves. It, it, you know, it's Benjamin Franklin. It's not, it's not in the Bible. So the second most popular Bible verse, which is actually number one, because the first one got disqualified for not being in the Bible, okay, is judge not that you be not judged. Favorite verse of Americans is judge not that ye be not judged. And the way we interpret that is, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, it's all cool. It really doesn't matter. You go your way, you make it up, I'll go my way. We all kind of end up in the same place at, at the end of time. And that is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are to judge From cover to cover, it tells us to judge. Judge truth from error. Judge how truth and error applies to my life. And if I follow truth, it ends up with these results. And if I follow error, it it ends up with these consequences. And then if you do it lovingly and humbly and graciously out of a motivation of love, if I judge you as your pastor, the most loving thing I can do is to say this is the truth, this is error. If you follow the truth, there will be these blessings. If you follow error, I judge that you will end up in trouble. Let's imagine for a moment you were going to drive out of here and you were gonna, I knew that you were going to cross a bridge that was unsound structurally. And that most likely if you drove across it, the weight of your car would cause it to collapse and you would most likely be killed. The most loving thing in the world for me would be to say, I judge that bridge to be unstable. And I judge that you are going to drive over that bridge. Therefore, I plead with you lovingly, humbly, graciously, do not go that way, instead go that way. The least loving thing for me to do would be, oh well, who am I to judge? Just drive over that bridge. Who am I to say that it may may fall down? Who am I to say you shouldn't go there? You do your thing, I do my thing. That is an unloving thing to do. So the Bible, when it talks about judge not that you be not judged, or in this verse, who are you to judge your neighbor, absolutely is not applied in that way. How is it applied? It is applied that we're not to be judgmental if it means arrogant, I'm better than you, pharisaical. Jesus, when he said judge not that you be not judged, he was thinking of the Pharisees who arrogantly, presumptively put down other people to make themselves feel better. Uh, but instead that we be aware of our own faults. But who who are you to judge your neighbor? To be very aware of our own shortcomings as we in humility and graciousness encourage each other to follow in the right direction. It's always interesting to me. I don't know if you find this to be true. But I am most irritated in other people what I myself am most guilty of. Do you find that true at all? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And I hate to confess this, because it's going to make me lose respect with a certain portion of you, okay? But I'm going to do it in the name of vulnerability because I think it'll be helpful to you. Okay, I am one of those people that's perpetually about five or ten minutes late. Now, you on-time people are just, like, grinding your teeth. You, you don't think you can listen to me preach anymore, you know. That, that's it, okay. Uh, how, how many of you were raised to five, on-time was actually five minutes too late? How many of you? you? You were raised to be there five minutes early, okay? And if you were on-time, you were five. I was raised that way, too. It just didn't take with me, okay? Uh, my dad was a very on-time person. It's just that it didn't take. I can, my earliest memories of my dad sitting in the car waiting for my mom to get ready for church, honking the horn, as if that is gonna really help anything. My earliest my parents had a great marriage, but on Sunday morning, honk, honk, and my mom, you know, running around to, to get ready. That was my earliest memories. And and yet it's so funny. I'm a five no, look, okay, I don't want you guys to judge me too much. So I'm a five to seven minute person too late. And all the staff is going, he's in denial. He's in such i am a, I'm a five to seven. I am so judgmental of those that are 10 minute late people. Oh, those 10 to 12 minute late people. Oh my goodness. And and, and James would say to me, Glenn, who are you to judge your neighbor? You that walk into the meeting five minutes late, judge a person that comes in five minutes later. By the way, I will never judge you if you walk in late to church. I never will. You know, my philosophy is, if you got here, you're my hero, okay? In this busy day and age in which we live, I don't care when you, I'm just, you're literally like my hero just for getting here. So if you're ever getting ready for church and you're like, oh, we're already 15 minutes late and Satan whispers in your ear, then you might as well not even go. Uh-uh, Okay? Still come, still come. Get in on the closing worship. It's awesome, okay, at the end. Get in on the final point. Um, So funny, my daughter's gonna kill me if she heard me tell this story. So I hope she's not watching. Sometimes when their baby is sick, they stay home and watch us online. But she's Abby that's in Washington, D.C. And growing up, she was the on-time person in our family. And it was so frustrating to her because she was the on-time person in a non-on-time family, How many of you can identify with that? Okay, you're the on-time person. You're the one that shows up actually on time for Thanksgiving dinner. Okay, you're the one that's actually there at the time the family agreed they were going to be there. Well, that was Abby, and and even from being a little girl, it just drove her crazy. And I remember, uh, you know, she was our strong-willed one that just broke us when we were younger. I've talked about that. How I just would never preach on parenting because everybody would be like. You? Who are you <laughs> to teach on parenting? We've seen your child. Okay, we're not listening to you preach. She just, she just broke us, and uh, and now she's a legislative director in Washington D.C. on Capitol Hill. She was born for this. Okay, she she was born. She was stro- so strong-willed, and I remember when she was about twelve years old. Kimberly looked at her and said, "I bet you think you can run this family better than we can." And she goes, "Yes, I can." <laughs> and you know what's interesting? She could have. We should have just turned it over to her at eight years of age. It would have been great. Okay. And, and she's always been the on-time person. She had a lunch at the White House on Thursday. And so she, uh, she uh, selfies a picture to us of just before she went into this lunch at the White House, outside of the White House. And I looked at the time mark, and sure enough, she's 15 minutes early. Now, if it was the White House, I'd be on time too. Okay? I, I would be on time as well. She's always been super on time. Okay. Always been judgmental of the rest of the family. And then she had a baby. (laughs) And I was out there a few months ago, and they're always on time to church. She and her husband work in children's ministry and greeting ministry at their church. And they're always, always early, early, early church, always on time to church. We showed up to church a half an hour late. We missed all the worship and walked in just as the pastor was beginning to preach. I'm like, what alien has invaded the body of my daughter? No, it's not an alien. Her name is Avonlea, not alien, Avonlea. And she was born to their family, and now they're late like the rest of us. So those of you with kids, you will never be judged here. You walk in, uh, you're, you're my hero just for getting yourself here today. And this busy culture in which we live, I praise God um, uh, for, for you. So at any rate, my tendency, our tendency is to be most judgmental of others, most bothered by others in the very area that we ourselves are are guilty of. And this is not healthy for us. A psychiatrist for the Veterans Administration, David H. Fink, did a study of 10,000 people. He divided them into two groups, those who suffered from nervousness and tension and those who did not. As the study progressed, he discovered a crucial trait. Those who suffered from extreme tension tended to be habitual fault finders. They were constant critics of the people and the things around them. Those who were free from tension were the least fault finding. And so it's not healthy to be katalate, katalateing each other, okay? Uh, talking each other down. Um, and seeing things from our own perspective. We've got to have humility that I see the world from my perspective and that is not Always 100% accurate to see it from my perspective. Great example of this from history. Uh, The turn of the century, the world's most famous astronomer was a guy named Sir Percival Lowell. We've got his picture here. He spent his whole life studying the solar system with the biggest telescopes that were available back then. And Mars was his favorite target. When he looked at Mars, he saw a maze of channels and canals. He was convinced that those canals were proof of intelligent life. Uh, Perhaps they were a race of creatures older and wiser than humans who had built these canals. Lowell's observations gained wide acceptance. This is only 100 years ago. And everybody, he was the smartest guy in the world, so everybody believed him on this. No one dared to contradict him. But now we know he was 100% wrong. Spacecraft have gone to Mars. No canals. We've mapped the whole surface of Mars. Uh, It's been mapped. No canals have been found. How could this brilliant man have seen so much that wasn't there. There are two possibilities historians give us. Number one, he just wanted to see them so badly that he saw them. And sometimes if we want to see something, we'll see it. But here's the other one that I find very interesting. Historians, we now know that he had a rare eye disease which made him see the blood vessels in his own eyes. The canals he saw were nothing more than the bulging veins in his own eyeballs. I am so much like that. I see the world through my own bulging eyeballs. I see canals where there are no canals. I so many times um, don't expect the best of people while gathering information. They're guilty until proven innocent. We we need to be innocent with each other. Expect the best of each other until proven otherwise. And we gather more information, and when we get more information. Sometimes we will see things uh, differently. One of the famous preachers of the 1800s was Charles Spurgeon. He was Queen Victoria's favorite preacher, and he was a Baptist. Uh, Spurgeon and his wife had this practice of selling, but refusing to give away the eggs that their chickens laid. So they had chickens, they, but they would, even close relatives, they'd say, no, nope, got to pay for them. Even close relatives were told, if you want them, you have to pay for them. Now, since Spurgeon had this huge church in London and a salary to match it, Some people labeled the Spurgeons as greedy, kind of like television evangelists are labeled today. And the Spurgeons just accepted the criticism without defending themselves. It was only after Mrs. Spurgeon died that the whole story came out. All the profits from the sale of the eggs went to support two elderly widows. That's why they wouldn't give them away. They'd only sell them because these eggs were being used to support two women that had uh, no other support. More information uh, clarified the situation. Uh, One of my favorite preachers is Chuck Swindoll, and he was at a pastor's conference in Spokane, Washington, and he tells of being at a California Christian camp. I think most likely it was Forrest Home uh, up here um, uh, in the mountains on the way to Big Bear. First day there, this man approached him and said he was really looking forward to hearing Dr. Swindoll speak and how delighted he was to realize his lifelong dream. Uh, That evening, Chuck Swindoll noticed the man sitting on the front row sound asleep during a sermon. So he thinks, okay, you know, had a long drive up here into the mountains after a work day, so it, it's cool. Every night, the guy would sleep through his sermon. And Chuck Swindoll admits that he was beginning to get irritated by it. It began to bother him. By the way, it never bothers me. You shouldn't sleep during Chuck Swindoll. You want to sleep during me, that's God's blessing to you. You need to catch up on some rest, and that could be the most spiritual. My mother always thought the solution to every problem in life was an nap and maybe a 30-minute nap during my sermon is just what you need to believe in God again. Okay, so you do that. So, anyway, on the last night of the conference, this man's wife comes up and apologizes because her husband was sleeping during all of his sermons. She then explained that he had recently been diagnosed as having terminal cancer, and the medication he was taking to ease the pain made him extremely sleepy. But it had been one of his lifelong ambitions to hear Dr. Swindoll speak before he died, and now he had fulfilled that dream. Oh my goodness, does a little extra information just help out on things uh, uh, a lot, okay? And that's what we're called to do, to avoid katalalate because we expect the best of each other. We don't play God uh, with each other. Now, the rest of it is playing God with ourselves, planning our own lives outside of God. Uh, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. Now, listen, and in the Greek, this means, hey, hey, pay attention on this. You who say, today or tomorrow, my schedule, we will go to this or that city, my location that I pick, spend a year, my timetable, carry on business, my agenda, and make money, my result. And this is a great description. I mean, the the businessmen in a congregation like James were just known for being all over. I mean, we think our our business people, you all fly all over the country, even the world doing business. Well, they were the same way. These businessmen uh, there in their community that he was writing to, the Jewish community, they were just known for being all over the Mediterranean Sea and just really good at these uh, business transactions. So he says, hey, you who do this, Our own time, okay? He's talking about we live according to our own time, our own location, our own schedule, our own business, our own result. Listen to you who say today or tomorrow, go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Our own time, James is talking about. Our own location, he's talking about. Our own schedule here, our own business, and our own result. Now, the Bible is not against planning. But it is against practical atheism where we don't plan thinking about God's priorities, God's will, God's plan for our life, or thinking in the perspective of eternity. That's why Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I heard a speaker, I think Pastor Randy had him here. He was the senior adult pastor at E.B. Free Fullerton, uh, uh, just where Chuck Swindoll had been. And he did this thing when he turned 60. He listed the number of days before he turned, and he came up with some number, 80 or 85 or something like that. And he would literally cross off one number per day. I, I thought it was a cool idea. I haven't done it yet because it sounds depressing to <laughs> me. But anyway, he was just like X off the days to number his days, to literally say, this is how many days I have to make an impact before we walk into eternity. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Um, Solomon says in Proverbs, this is the way that we can be wise. The plans of the diligent lead to profit in this life and in the next. And surely as haste, not thinking about how we live our lives, just kind of living living it day by, moment by moment, however we feel, leads to poverty in this life and in the next life. Do the most important things first. I've used this illustration before. As a matter of fact, a decade ago, we had a series um, Uh, called um, uh, Living for the Line and Not for the Dot. Anybody remember that series here, Living for the Line? And we had a line stretched across the whole worship center here with a little dot in the middle of it. And so imagine your life as uh, this this gray right here, this gray tip to this. this. This is our life. These are the few days that we live, okay, here on earth, sometimes short, sometimes long. And the rest of this rope is eternity, now, I'm going to have um, Ethan and uh, Soleil come up here now. And uh, would they take this rope uh, as far as you can up that right there? Okay, not to the left of the coon table, but straight up there, right there. And take this side. I threw the wrong side out there. See if you're going to untangle that <laughs> in, in, in 10 seconds. Ready? Go. All right, I've made a mess of things. I would never be good at roping cattle. I am telling you that right now. So they're going to pull that up there. And uh, yeah, just work on that. By the end of the sermon, you should get that untangled so (laughs) hey. This is an awesome object lesson right here. You guys want to know why I don't do object lessons more often? Okay. This right here is our life. Okay. This is our life right here. Over in a moment. And yet we spend all of our lives. How comfortable am I during this life? Uh, How happy am I during this life? How many cool vacations can I take during this life? How many fun things can I do? How much money can I make? And it's all about this little piece of our lives. Now imagine this rope stretching around the globe over and over and over again. That's eternity. So that's what Moses is saying here to us. Uh, Teach us to number our days so that they'll have an impact for eternity. Help us to number our days so that we will uh, use them for things that will outlive ourselves uh, for eternity. You know, you guys can give up. Let's hear it for Ethan and Soleil. You guys are awesome. (laughs) This is going to go down in Pastor Glenn practical bloopers. Okay, but thank you so much. Let's hear it for our high schoolers. They're so awesome. Uh, There's this cathedral, famous cathedral in Europe, And it's known for its uh, three arched doorways that lead from the vestibule, what they would call it, we call it the lobby, into the sanctuary. And there, there are three entrances here. It's actually five, I guess, but let's just imagine there's one, two, three. And over the one on the left is inscribed over the door, all that pleases is but a moment. Everything in your life that makes you happy, boom, just for a moment. Over the other entrance, it says all that troubles is but a moment. Whatever you're most worried about today, whatever we're most troubled about, for a moment. The main archway in the center leading into the center aisle of the sanctuary is inscribed, all that is important is eternal. Everything that's going to make us happy this week, just for a moment. Everything that's going to make us sad this week, just for a moment. But all that is truly important uh, is eternal. Now why is it foolish Uh, to play God um, uh, with ourselves. Uh, Verse 14, uh, chapter four. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. If he was a Southern Californian, he would say, you are like June gloom that appears until noon and and then vanishes. That's what our life is. Life is uncertain. Pete Maravich was kind of the Steph Curry of... uh, of when I was growing up as a kid, one of the best pure shooters in the NBA, uh, Pete Maravich. Um, and he's 40 years old. He was also a committed follower of Jesus Christ, like Steph Curry. And uh, he was here, right, in our local area. Uh, he had taped for James Dobson, Focus on the Family a program, and that's when folks on the family, its headquarters were very near to us here, where the 57 and the, and the 10 come together. But they went out to Pasadena Nazarene, a sister church of ours, and they were playing basketball in their gymnasium. And uh, they're playing a pickup game of basketball. And Pete Maravich turns to Dr. Dobson, and he says, I need to do this more often. I'm really feeling good. Turns away and drops dead on the spot. 40 years old professional athlete shape, just like that. Life is uncertain. And and, and so we're we're careful how we number our days to have an impact uh, for for eternity. Life is brief. And God's evaluation is in verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting of living our lives as practical atheists apart from God is, is evil. So how can I stop playing God? How can I stop playing, playing God? Well, the first thing we've got to do is we got to stop running from God. we got to stop running so fast we don't have time to stop and listen to his still small voice to tell us what's truly important in life. So the first thing we got to do is stop running from God. Now That's the right. first step is stop running from God. The second step James is going to challenge us with now is letting God be God. Placing God in his rightful position. He says in, in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And this is a saying that's kind of fallen out of style with Christians. When when I was growing up, I'd hear my dad. My dad was a businessman, just kind of like the business people that were talked about here in James, and he would say, Lord willing. And you got to be careful that it doesn't become like, you know, like God bless you when you sneeze or something like that, that you really kind of think about it when you say it. But it's a beautiful thing, and it's a practice we've lost as Christians to say, we're going to do this, Lord willing, if it's according to his will, if it's according to his plan. Christians of 150 years ago, even 200 years ago, like the Puritans and the early followers, the Methodists that were followers of John Wesley, if you read letters from those Christians back from one or two, cent- or, two or three centuries ago, they would have a P.S. You know, at the end of the letter, they'd always put the words not P.S., but D.V., which means in Latin, these are two Latin words, Deo Valente which means God willing. And they made it their practice after they wrote their letters to say, all this is what I hope to do, but it's all God willing. We take our lives and place them under the authority of God, placing ourselves in the right position. You see, here's another definition for sin. Sin is playing God. Obedience is placing ourselves in the right position and placing them under the authority of God. And then he gives one last challenge in verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do, like what he's been teaching, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now we're gonna share the Lord's Supper together. And everybody here is welcome to to share the Lord's Supper. The bread represents the body of Jesus given on the cross. Uh, the bre- the bre- bread, the cup represents his blood shed for us on the cross. And everybody here is is welcome to share in it as long as you've made a personal commitment to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord for the forgiveness of our sins, Uh, For the forgiveness, that's the good. This is part of the good that we know we ought to do, that God teaches in the Bible. And if we don't do it, it is sin. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that. If you look right in front of you there on the book rack, you're going to see a little card that says resource. And it talks about how to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, Step one, it's ABC. Admit your condition before God. God, I admit that I have katalolete. I have talked down other people. B, we believe that Jesus is the one who took our place on the cross. He died instead of us on the cross so that we could go free. And then C, we choose to follow Jesus. We choose to open our hearts and receive him as our Savior and Lord. There's a suggested prayer there. And if you've ever prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to pray it today, today could be your day. Would you pray silently as as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life and I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Now if you prayed that prayer, we've got some resources we'd love to give to you to help you in your walk with Jesus. Again, back at the Connect Center where I'll be standing, no pressure, no obligation. If you'd like to talk to me or talk to one of the people back there, you're welcome to, But, but if you just wanna pick up the resources that we'd love to give you as a gift to help you in your new walk with Jesus, I would just love to encourage you uh, to do that. True story from history. There was a woman who was sentenced to death during the French Revolution. Her only crime was being a duchess who came from a wealthy family. She was thrown into prison, but still allowed to be served by a maid who loved her dearly. While the exhausted duchess slept, the maid quietly put on her mistress's clothes. And when the duchess's name was called the maid went out and was executed in her place. Later, the duchess woke up and found her clothes gone, so she put on the servant's clothes, and when the jailer came in, he said, you are free to go, your mistress has just been executed. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He took off his clothes, and, and, and he put on our clothing of sin, And then he died on the cross. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin so that he could become the righteousness for all. He took on the clothing of our sin and and died for our place on the cross. And then we took on his clothing of righteousness, of purity, of holiness in the eyes of God. And we became a servant of God, a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's why on a regular basis we want to thank Him and we want to honor Him for what He has done for us. Let's take just a moment now and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.